Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Jesus Calling Podcast, featuring multiple guests who have appeared in their own episodes on the Jesus Calling Podcast, speaking to the topic of hope. Through a variety of situations, many difficult, some tragic, our guests from all walks of life share how hope stayed alive in their hearts and how their faith fueled that hope. We'll start with a thought from best-selling author and speaker, Dr. Rick Rigsby. I was born in San Francisco in the 1950s. My father migrated from Texas. So my father is a cook at this school called California Maritime Academy in Vallejo, which is about uh, 27 miles north of the city of San Francisco. It's the only job he could find. Here you have this man from Huntsville, Texas, flat, dry, Huntsville, Texas, never been on a ship before, is now a cook at a school that trains merchant seamen. My father had the breakfast shift. He had to be at California Maritime Academy at five in the morning. The academy was only 15 minutes from our home. My mother said for over 30 years, he left at 3.45 in the morning. And one day she said, Daddy, why do you leave so early? And his response was, one of these days, one of my boys will catch me in the act of excellence. You'd rather be an hour early than a minute late. And so we have these simple lessons. Don't judge. Be early. Son, be kind. Kind deeds are never lost. See the biblical connection? Son, yes, sir. Whenever you're kind, the world will stop. Uh, Son, yes, sir. Not only do I want you to be kind, but I want you to be a servant. Someone once said that ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. (laughs) I had a third grade dropout daddy that said, make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. Ego is the anesthesia that deadens the pain of stupidity. Pride is the burden of a foolish person. So be a servant. Son, if you're going to do a job, do it right. Be excellent. Now I know it ought to be do it well, but I like the way he used to say it. If you're going to do a job, you do it right. So what do we have? We have a third grade dropout daddy who enters a culture rearing children where there seems to be a deficit when it comes to common sense and executing basics. And he just takes these basics that he lived his life by his whole life, practices them, models them in front of his children, and then teaches his children to don't judge, to not judge, to be early, to be kind, to be a servant to whatever you do, do with excellence. How you do anything is how you do everything. So if you don't learn character in the trenches, if you don't learn the basics in the trenches, what in the world makes us think that when we get to the big stage, it's all of a sudden gonna happen? My wife, my college sweetheart, the mother of my two children would get sick, Diagnosed with breast cancer, and after a courageous six-year battle, she went home. And uh, right before she died, two days before she died, she had no hair because of chemotherapy. Her tummy pooched out because of a liver no longer working. She weighed about 80 pounds, and she was in really bad shape. And some of the last words she ever shared with me on this earth were these. It doesn't matter to me any longer how long I live. What matters to me most is how I live. And so how could it be that a dying wife taught me how to live, gave me a charge 
placed a demand upon me. It doesn't matter your condition, but what matters is how. Now, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Let's go several days later to the funeral. There's not much that's worse than going to your wife's funeral, clutching the hands of your two little boys. And I remember looking at the remains in the casket, and I remember saying, Daddy, I have no hope. And my father said, Son, now remember, third grade dropout. Son, you can't lose something God gave you. You haven't lost hope. You've lost perspective. And then he said these words, Son, just stand. Those two separate, discreet statements, one by a third grade dropout daddy in front of a casket, one by a dying wife, came together and gave me such incredible encouragement in the form of a demand that was placed on me to put one foot in front of the other when I wanted to quit, to keep living when I wanted to die, to get up and put my clothes on and drive my kids to school when I wanted to stay in bed all day and just cry. Those two separate and discreet statements are the statements that I use now 24 years later all over the world. I encounter people at every level who just want to give up, who don't feel like they have hope, who feel like there's no reason for which to hope. And I encourage them with the words of a dying wife, it doesn't matter how long we live. What matters is how we live. I encourage them with words from a third grade dropout. You have hope. You haven't lost hope. You've lost perspective. So just stand. NFL Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly and his wife, New York Times bestselling author Jill Kelly, talking about their son, Hunter. When Hunter was four months old, he was, we brought, when we brought him home from the hospital, he was perfect. It was an easy pregnancy. He had passed all of his newborn screening tests. He was healthy. It was, it was almost a perfect scenario, really, because we had a daughter, Jim had just retired, and now we have our son. And so we took Hunter home. We noticed early on that there were things that didn't seem right. He was irritable all the time. So we thought maybe it was colic. We were talking to the pediatrician often, getting insight from him. I stopped nursing. We started putting him on different formulas, all those sort of things. And we continued to ask the pediatrician what could possibly be wrong. And so on his three-month well visit, the doctor, you know, was checking Hunter out. And she said, you know, he's showing signs of cerebral palsy. So we were devastated, but we, we knew through Jim doing a, a ton of charity work and interacting with children with cerebral palsy, we knew that they could have a really amazing quality of life. And so we were hopeful. However, Hunter continued to get worse. And so we continued to talk to the pediatrician and say, you know, things are not right. He wasn't even able to drink formula anymore. And so we continued to ask questions and eventually he was checked out by a neurologist and she did a battery of tests and blood work. And at four months of age, Hunter was diagnosed with crabby leukodystrophy. 
what that is affects the white matter in your brain and pretty much everything we take for granted every day, the movement of your arms, your legs, your hearing, your sight, your swallowing, all those motor skills. And I remember it as clear as yesterday or this moment that, you know, when she said there is nothing you can do, there's no cure and there's no treatment and your son probably will not live to see his second birthday. I just remember sitting in her office and everything up to that moment that I had put my hope in, all the worldly things, you know, Jim's, I guess, celebrity status, Jim's um, ability to make things happen. You know, we have money, we have all of these worldly things, and none of those things were going to save Hunter, not one of them. So for me, in that moment of just tremendous fear and anguish and devastation, I knew that I was going to have to seek beyond what this world has to offer. We wanted hope, we wanted joy, we wanted Jesus. We didn't even know that we needed Jesus. We wanted him because we wanted help for Hunter. So I just started seeking after God. And it was about a year and a half after Hunter's diagnosis that I surrendered my life to the Lord. And of course, uh, there's so many more things about this whole story, and it would take days to tell it all. But um, Jill and I, of course, uh, every morning we wake up, we thought, you know, is this the day that the Lord's going to take our son? And uh, it was tough on us. It really was until Jill's mother said, you guys got to quit treating him like he's dying. Start treating him like he's alive. And uh, she was right. So we started doing things with him that we never thought we would do. Take him snowmobiling and put him on the back of ponies and horses and take him for little, you know, walks around. And just the things that we would do that we never would have done before. Ultimately, you know, the doctors did tell us that he would not live to see his second birthday. But he did live to be eight and a half. After Hunter was diagnosed... And we were told that no one was doing anything for this disease or the children suffering from this disease and the families. We both knew that with the platform that God had given Jim, that we had to do something. We could not just sit back and know that there was other families out there that were going through what we were going through and children going through what Hunter was going through. So... We started Hunter's Hope, and the amazing thing about that is, is that the suffering did not stop, but the way we looked at Hunter's life after God intervened in our lives changed completely. Ultimately, what God has done over the past 20 years that the Foundation has been in existence is immeasurably more than anything we would have ever set out to do, you know. But we are so thankful and so blessed to have been able to impact the lives of countless people. Ultimately, though, our hope is that we provide a greater hope through the Foundation. Yes, we want to provide opportunity for an earthly hope, an earthly cure, treatment, whatever. But God, through Hunter, taught us the greater hope and that's eternal life. So that's our greater hope for the foundation. 
heroic Southwest Airlines pilot, Tammy Jo Schultz, who landed a commercial plane full of passengers safely after an engine exploded midair. April 17th, Darren Elliser was my first officer. And we started in Nashville. We met the flight attendants, Rachel Fernheimer, Shanique Mallory, and Catherine Sandoval at the airplane for the first time. I try to make a habit of bringing coffee with me to the aircraft. It seems to bring everybody together faster than if I say, you wanna get together for the captain briefing? <laughs> so we all met around some coffee and chatted about the, the day ahead, how far we were all going and, and what the weather was like, different things like that. And then we had a little time to chat about just where everybody was from or things like that. So then when we landed in LaGuardia, we had a little extra time in between flights and we, we got to chatting a little bit more and, and realized a little bit more about each other before we took off. And it was planned for a four hour flight. So Darren's turn to fly, we took off and 20 minutes into the flight, passing through 32,500 feet. Darren and I comparing notes months after it happened, we both thought we'd been hit by another aircraft. The jolt was so hard and we were just uh, pushed sideways and the aircraft went into a snap roll to the left. We both lunged for the controls and caught it going past 40 degrees angle of bank and righted it. And by that time, initially we had seen the engines, the number one engine rolling back, the instruments blinking and showing that that engine had exploded or wasn't any good anymore. And then we couldn't see anything and we couldn't hear anything because after the initial shock of it all happening and we're descending just because we're heavy and we, we have this immense amount of drag now where the engine had peeled back something like a banana peeling and remained attached, but now those big pieces were flailing in 500 mile an hour wind. And there was also such a shudder involved with that we couldn't focus on the engine instrumentation. And a cloud of smoke came in, probably from the exploded engine through the air conditioning system. And, you know, there's nothing to look at in the cockpit. I can't focus on anything. I can't communicate to anyone. And there's a stabbing pain in, in my ears and I can't breathe. So it was a kind of a, a forced moment of silence in that there was nothing I could really do. And I remember looking out the, just the window straight ahead thinking, I'm not sure everything we need to fly is gonna stay on. Um, I've never experienced anything quite like this. And if that's the case, then this could be the day I meet my maker. But on the good side, on the good news also is that we're still flying. And I'm not sure everyone feels the same way about it <laughs> that I do. So the good news is we're flying, we'll just get back to work. And by that time the smoke had cleared out, we had slowed down enough that we could see our engine instruments, read checklists, get our oxygen masks on, communicate a little bit. We told Philadelphia that we wanted to go to Philly and then I communicated to the back because I thought as much as it's startling for us up here with control of things and seeing what's going on, it's gotta be mind-numbing fright going on in the back where all you have is what's happened. You have no knowledge of what's going on. So I pushed my PA button and made a PA that said, 
it wasn't my most elegant PA, but it was that we're not going down, we're going into Philly because I wanted to know that the cockpit was still in control of the airplane, we had a plan, and we had a destination. And at that point, that's when the flight attendants unbuckled and headed through an aisle that was so rough, they had sprained back, uh, bruised ribs, lacerations just from going down the aisle to, to help people get their oxygen masks on and to tell them we're, we're going into Philly. And it was a takeaway for me that that element of hope had such a change on people and their actions and their reactions. It didn't change our circumstances. Hope doesn't have to change our circumstances to change us. The um, airplane, whenever I tried to add power and turn right, I wasn't able to. I had so much drag pulling to the left. And when I add power, then that pushed us to the left. So there wasn't any turning right until I did something different. There was just this pause in the cockpit voice recorder whenever we listened to it. And then you hear my voice just asking, just in a question, two words, and it's Heavenly Father. And I didn't realize till then that it was out loud. I thought it was a private conversation. But Darren kind of teased me. He goes, I knew you were praying. <laughs> I said, yes, all the way down. But I was thinking, Heavenly Father, what am I missing? I know we didn't wrestle with this for 30,000 feet, not to be able to turn in the last 2,000 and make it to the runway. And just kind of having that mental breathing room in prayer, I realized, okay, uh, asymmetrical thrust is pushing me away. So I took off the thrust, turned around, and then added a little bit back in. We just weren't able to add much thrust because as we slowed down to land, that gives us less airflow over the rudder, which keeps our nose straight. So as I slowed down, I was only able to have less and less power available. We got our gear down at the right amount of time so that we made the runway. And I was so impressed with the people on board, not just the heroes that I mentioned and my crew, which were all amazing heroes in this situation, but the, the entire group of passengers, when we landed, there wasn't this angry frustration and surge for the doors. I walked back to, to reassure people, help the flight attendants, and everyone was calmly seated, attentive to what we had to say. And when we told them, we'd like for you to remain seated, there's air stairs on the way, but we do have a medical emergency. We'd like to take care of her first if you'll remain seated. Everyone was so attentive and quiet and it just made me feel like everyone felt the value of human life that day and you know of course we were all glad that we had made the runway uh, but the survival of 148 will never eclipse the loss of one no one knew jennifer and jennifer knew no one on that plane but you don't have to know someone for them to have value and we were thrilled to return 148 people to their lives and loved ones. And it will always weigh heavy on our heart that we weren't able to do that for Jennifer. There is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And that day really, I feel like, was the first day I understood 
those words. Country music legend Randy Travis and his wife Mary share about how a stroke nearly claimed Randy's life and the hope they clung to that he would recover. We made a good team going through it. It's one of those things I've told people, I said, it's a crash course. It's not anything that you are ever prepared for. It doesn't matter how many years of school you have, you can never prepare for a calamity like that. And it happened overnight. As far as we knew, there was things going on um, with the heart, with the cardiomyopathy that Dr. Mack had, of course, educated us on after the fact that had been going on probably for four or five weeks, but we didn't know that was going on. And um, by the time we got to the hospital, the heart was shutting down and it had done its damage. So that's when he flatlined. And it was all within 24 hours that we went from packing a bus to go on a, a Canada tour to being in the hospital for almost six months. So it was overnight and it was, it was rapid fire. So he got down to right below 100 pounds. You know, he was on feeding tubes. He was on IVs. He had two brain surgeries. He had several tracheotomies. He was intubated. He was on ECMO, which is life support. Um, then when you think you're out of the woods, then he had the three hospital-born bacterias. And that's when they said, there's nothing else we can do for him. Just you know, there's no way he can survive these. We can't get on top of the staph infection. They said, you just, it's a hard decision, but you just need to think maybe of letting him go. And I went into the room and I just sat down and talked to him. And I said, honey, if you want to keep fighting this fight, I said, let me know. I said, I need to know. And it was the sweetest, it was a moment I'll take to my grave. I was holding this hand because, of course, that one was paralyzed. So I was holding this hand, and he squeezed it. And this is, I just will never forget this sweet, sweet tear that, and I knew that he wanted to keep fighting. At this point, he was semi coma, comatose, you know, but he knew exactly what was going on. And I knew then that he wasn't ready to give up. So, you know, I was kind of like a mama bear at this point in time. I just, I, I told him, I said, we're going to give it all we've got, and and I'm watching every move y'all make. You just got to give this guy a chance. God wasn't through with Randy. He wasn't through with what Randy could do in this world and the difference that he could make in lives. We leaned real hard on God, and I know I spent a lot of nights over in my little hospital cot or whatever was there talking to God and saying prayers. and. There was a newness in me as far as my faith. And I always asked him, I said, God, I said, just please give him back to me. I don't care what way, shape, or form, just please let me have him back. And he was faithful. God was faithful. I did a lot of praying. And this Jesus calling, it was so interesting to me because I remembered my brother Stubbs, he and his wife gave me a copy. He and Holly gave me a copy of Jesus Calling. Denise and George and Luke, Luke's our godson, and Luke and Kennedy, they brought us Jesus Calling. It was, I think, within the first week of being there, I had six Jesus Callings. Everybody that came brought 
a Jesus calling. This is, I think, the one that um, George and Denise and Luke gave us. Then I had the other, the leather bound. It came in all shapes and sizes. Um, I know at the heart hospital, there was people that would come in, of course, with heart attacks and triple bypasses, and they didn't know if they were going to live. So, yeah, I shared four or five of my Jesus callings with people, but it was just one of those things that it helped me get through those times because I could turn to any page in there and read something that gave me some strength and helped me to understand that what we were going through, we weren't alone. I'm so grateful for that that unspoken relationship that we have. I mean, I can tell him all day how much he means to me, but he can't tell me that. And I think early on that frustrated him a little bit, didn't it? You would get a little upset. And there was times when I think he was, you were pretty down, weren't you, for a while. But since then, I think we've kind of adjusted to our new life and we're okay with that. You learn to to laugh. I think that's one of the things that every day we try to find something to laugh at, or us. We'll laugh at ourselves more than anything, right? But (laughs) we do, we find something to laugh about. And um, you know, I think the great thing about love is that you, you, um, you know the worst about each other, but you only see the best. You forgive. You keep God in the middle of all of it because there's days when you you don't understand each other. There's still tough days, but we go to bed and smile and we wake up and we smile and you know, you forgive, you forget, you go on. There's life is still good. It's just different. The CEO of nonprofit organization Convoy of Hope, Hal Donaldson. Convoy of Hope has has now served over 100 million people. We have distributed well over a billion dollars and donated food and supplies. Uh, We feed 200,000 children every single day in 14 countries, and we train thousands and thousands of single mothers and farmers. Those mothers, we help them start their own businesses with farmers. We help them increase their yields. And we also respond to disasters across the United States and around the world. We also conduct community outreaches across the country. We do about 50 of them every year. And that's where we bring together churches, businesses, civic organizations, government agencies, and we bring them together to really touch their own community. And the outreaches, they provide everything from free medical and dental care to job fairs, shoes for kids, groceries, and a full menu of services, in fact. And through all these outreaches, we we mobilize about 50,000 volunteers every year to share their faith in a a practical way. You know, when when you're obedient to God and you do the things that are important to God, God takes that step of faith and he grows it. He makes it something larger than we ever dreamed. I know that's been the case with Convoy of Hope. I believe that vision is, is incremental. If we're obedient to the little things, God can take those little things and he can show us the next step and then the next step until... It becomes something much larger than what we ever dreamed. One of the questions I do get a lot is, how do I cope with all the pain and the suffering that I see in the world? And I think we have a choice. You know, we can allow the images of despair to paralyze us or the enormity of the problems to, to paralyze us. 
or we can roll up our sleeves and say, let's get to work. Jesus used me to make a difference. And uh, one of the things I do believe is that when your mission is right, you can anticipate both hardship and miracles. I think if you are doing the work of the Lord, you are helping hurting people. If you're helping your brothers and sisters, I think if you're doing the right thing, if your mission is right, there's a big target on your back. And if you're driven by disruptive compassion, there's a big target on your back. But it's because of that hardship that it keeps you reliant on God and it keeps you in the Word of God. If it was easy, we might feel like we could do it without God's Word and we can't. We have to stay connected. We have to stay tethered to His Word. And my daughters and my wife and I, we've utilized Jesus Calling for years. It's just such a tremendous inspiration. It feels as though Jesus is talking directly to you. And it really offers help when you need it most. And I, I've just been surprised by how timely the words are. So we're grateful for Jesus Calling. Jesus was a revolutionary. We don't necessarily see him as that, but he was. He was a revolutionary. He is the greatest protester the world has ever known. He came to earth to disrupt the status quo. He saw things on earth that he wasn't pleased with. And so he came to protest those and to, to make changes. We're talking about a revolutionary who leads with kindness. Our world needs fundamental change. It needs people who will have a holy anger, if you will when they see hungry children, when they see abused mothers, when they see teenage suicides. We need a holy anger to rise up in the world today where revolutionaries in the name of Jesus are willing to pay the price to provoke change. And I think we know our lives are, are too comfortable when our comfort becomes our highest priority. And that's why I think revolutionary is such a, a good word, because when you look at revolutionaries throughout history, it's people who are willing to jump out of their comfort zones and to pay a price to see change. If it's leading a selfless life, it's saying that, God, use me as you will. I'm not satisfied with the way things are in my life or in my world. I want things to change. And so, God, you show me how. So. Revolutionaries are selfless people. They're not selfish. I think a lot of times, though, that the spiritual journeys become very selfish. And Jesus never taught that. That's not what he intended. It's certainly not what he modeled. And I think we need to come to the realization that the key to life, the key to fulfillment and purpose, it doesn't come from exceeding others. It comes from elevating others. Actress and singer, Kristen Chenoweth. I've had a lot of loss this year. My best friend died, and my voice teacher died, and my aunt and my uncle died over the past year and a half. And if anything, it's made me stop, because I had to. I go, 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 go. And the hardest part and the most beautiful part has been stopping. I'm back at it again, but the stopping, listening, to what is being said to me has been really important. In other words, that, that old saying of being, uh, stopping and smelling the roses. You know, I've taken many walks with my boyfriend and my dog and we've been like, wow, look at that pretty flower or look at these squirrels are everywhere. Oh my gosh, what's that creature? You know, it sounds very Pollyanna-ish, but 
I might not have noticed before. We're all just humans trying to do the best we can. So once you give yourself permission to be human, there's a, a weight that lifts. That you go, oh yeah, that's right. I'm not perfect. Only God is. And then I, I tend to forget where the focus has to remain. And by that I just mean like just giving it all up. I surrender all. I give. I can't do it by myself anymore. And he says, it wasn't ever meant for you to. One of the things for me that Jesus Calling has given me is, I don't know if a lot of people say this, but it seems to be exactly what I need on the exact day. And I don't know how that happens. You know, I just don't know how that works. But like, one of my favorites was, it's been a while, and I pulled it up, and I have it on my phone all the time so that I always can look at it not just on whatever that day's Jesus calling. January 29th, it says, keep your focus on me. I have gifted you with amazing freedom because I haven't felt very free this year, including the ability to choose the focal point of your mind. Only the crown of my creation has the remarkable capability. This is a sign of being made in my image. Let the goal of this day be to bring every thought captive to me. For me, Jesus Calling has had that a lot this particular year. And I'm like, wonder how they knew, you know, like, <laughs> how that happened. I, I don't know. Things like in Corinthians, you know, time with Him is so important. I've struggled with seeing the light. I've struggled with hearing what I need to hear. But light is coming. Light is here that we're not acknowledging, but light is coming. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you for listening to this special bonus episode of the Jesus Calling Podcast. Be sure and subscribe to the Jesus Calling Podcast so you can hear the full stories from each of these guests, and also make sure you get these special bonus episodes each month. For more information on Jesus Calling and Sarah Young, please visit JesusCalling.com or visit us on our social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.